I can't tell you how good it is for my soul to be in this room and in this pulpit this morning. This is the space where I first felt the call to ministry. That's a story I'll tell another time if you invite me back. But it was right after the death of Dr. King when I was a senior at Harvard College. I won't tell you about the book I've published either. The one I've written with Rebecca Parker. Except to say that it is about a house like this, as a house for hope. That it is about telling progressive people of all stripes that you don't have to build your own theology, as we have sometimes in our individualistic way said to Unitarian Universalists, it's here. In the very structure and framework of a heritage that has long provided alternative answers to the classic issues of systematic theology. So if you want a sneaky introduction to systematic theology from a progressive point of view, that's your book. And I won't tell you about why I bother to write books, although I'll tell you I finished one just yesterday. Thank you. This one about the particular history of universalists and Unitarians in this land, a people's history, more from the bottom up than the top down. I'm a little bit like Gloria Steinem, who once said, I, I really don't like to write, I just like to have written. Rebecca Parker, my co-author some years ago, handed me my first honorary doctorate, proclaiming me the uh, evangelical rabbi of liberal religion, which prompted my older daughter to present me with a little card that she'd found with a drawing on it of a guy with a beard and glasses and a very worn, well-traveled robe wearing a prayer shawl with a little yarmulke on top and the caption, the Velveteen Rabbi. <laughs> I guess I bother to do this work because it comes more often than not from somewhere deep in my soul. It comes from that place that yearns for connection and meaning and value and sisterhood and brotherhood and the building of the beloved community. As Ruby puts it, when you do things from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a joy. And a true house of hope is a moving palace, not confined to Harvard Square or any particular place that floats in the air with balconies and clear water flowing through infinity everywhere, yet contained under the single tent, the dome of heaven. You know, I, this is the first time I've been in this pulpit in 40 years. And I tried to remember what it was I heard the first Sunday I sat in the pew and began to ponder what it would mean to serve communities that keep open the prophetic questions 
I can't remember that sermon. It reminded me of the person who, after years of faithful church going, said to his minister, I have been coming to church every week now for about 60 years, Pastor, and I think I've heard about 3,000 sermons, but I can't recall anything of more than one or two of them. So why should I keep coming every Sunday? And the minister replied, well, I've been living for more than 50 years now and mostly eating three times a day. And over 50,000 meals, by my account, almost every one of them forgotten. But I couldn't keep going very long without food and water. So I'm not stopping seeking nourishment and maybe neither should you. You see, without a communal and deeper spiritual life, without drawing from deeper wells, it is rather easy in this life, I have discovered, to dry up and blow away. As a wise spiritual counselor once put it. Or to become what one counselee said to me about his own life not long ago, a tumbleweed spirit unstable and dried up. I think of a man whose memorial service I did this spring who was honest enough to admit that he'd spent some decades like that, then finally, finally settled in to some self-acceptance, a loving partnership, and the love and support of a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Two years ago, he stood before that congregation at the time of their annual stewardship drive and testified movingly, I have found, my friends, that church will get you through times of no money far better than money will get you through times of no church. Ponder that one. He doubled his pledge. But his tumbleweed years sadly had done so much damage to his health that he died all too early. And when I think of him now, all I can do is give thanks for the grace that that man did find in life. And then pray for his loved ones and his friends and the community that he leaves behind. I didn't used to do that. For years, I felt that prayer was magical thinking and that the only soul that I could really affect was my own. And then I learned to go deeper, beginning my meditations, as I tried to suggest you might today, by calling to mind the faces and the names of people for whom I had the most profound concern, whether at a conscious or unconscious level the friends and family and colleagues and parishioners and tried to think of them with compassion, even if I felt somewhat alienated from them. Buddhists call this cultivating a heart of kindness, I learned, and a wise elder in our own tradition told me that as long as he found that he prayed only for himself, he was just pushing the rock of his own ego up the hill. It was only when he began to include in his spiritual life, a deeper concern and connection with others, letting that concern come unbidden, up from the unconscious, 
that things began to flow for him and that he began to grow, to grow a soul deeper down. Of course, it is true that none of us can do that work of spiritual deep deepening for another person. Each must do it for him or herself. I think of Norman McLean's great American novella, And the River Runs Through It. Maybe you saw the movie with Brad Pitt. A minister up in Montana is trying to teach his two sons about spirituality via fly fishing. My father, says the elder, was very sure about certain matters pertaining to the universe. To him, all good things, trout as well as salvation, came by grace. And grace comes by art. And art does not come easy. It comes by practice. Jonathan can tell us that. All art, all music is a form of spiritual practice. So is writing. And in preaching, I've learned no matter how long I practice this art, there will be people out there with hungry souls whom I will fail to hook on any given Sunday no matter how artfully I cast or bait. In the story, the minister on one Sunday says to his flock, each one of us here will at one time or another look upon a loved one who is in need and then ask the question, I'm willing to help, but what is really needed? For it's true we can seldom help those who are closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves we have to give, or the part that we have to give is not what is quite wanted or needed. And so it's those we live with and should know who most elude us. But we can still love them. We can love them completely without ever fully understanding. He's thinking, of course, of the son who was played by Brad Pitt whose rebellion against grace results in self-destructive behavior and a premature death. And he demands that the surviving son explain the whole thing to him. I've told you all I know, the other son says, the survivor. All I really know is that he was a fine fisherman. You know more than that, says the father. He was beautiful. Yes, says the brother, he should have been. You taught him. Eventually the story ends, all things merge into one. And a river runs through it. This spring I spoke at the retirement of a colleague who has been a real spiritual guide to me, Barbara Merritt, the minister emerita now of First Unitarian in Worcester. Once when I was feeling particularly dried up and burned out as president of our association, I found myself saying to Barbara, you know, sometimes I just do not understand why God gave me such independent, difficult, cantankerous, stiff-necked, uncooperative individuals to try to spiritually lead. And without missing a beat, Barbara said, probably so you'd feel right at home. That's a guru. 
Last year, she had to tell her own people that her husband had been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness and did it in typical Barbara fashion at the end of a beautiful, spiritually deep column in her newsletter. A friend complained that when she got to the end of reading it, she said it was like your hostess at the end of a lovely dinner party thanking you for coming and then saying, now you'll excuse me because you see, I'm on fire. So Barbara has retired prematurely, no doubt to spend more time with her husband while she can. She credits him with having kept her in the ministry for 35 years. Evidently, every time she grew so frustrated with her congregation that she wrote another letter of resignation, he would calmly tell her after reading it that it was a fine letter to write, but not a good one to send. And then he would tell her to reach for the rope, the rope of God, as Rumi puts it, and to do another spiritual retreat. Barbara's retreat place is not easy to get to. It is on a river in the Punjab in northwest India, the ashram of the guru's guru. And when she goes there, she finds herself worshiping with a somewhat larger congregation than the one she's accustomed to leading, like 90,000 of that teacher's two million followers, all gathered on the riverbank, quietly singing chabs in Hindu hymns, all filled with the same longing, Barbara says, to move closer to what is most deeply real and true and eternal. She describes the ashram as a nearly perfect little city with bougainvillea and on the walls and gardens of dahlias and roses, all cared for by volunteers. But if you try to thank anybody for what they do to tend the place, they're likely to explain that they don't do it to seek anyone's approval, that they're only trying to serve the divine reality. So they greet one another, Muslims and Hindus alike, wealthy Westerners and poor hill people from the Kashmir, holding hands, saying namaste, meaning, of course, within you, I see the spark, the light of the divine. Barbara says, in the hellish existence that even I have sometimes embraced, we human beings are afraid of one another. Selfishness and suspicion rule our interactions, we withdraw, calculate, posture, manipulate. Worst of all, we believe that we are separate from one another and from the divine reality that flows through all. While wherein I am by the banks of that river, everyone is seen and treated as a child of God. And I wonder, <laughs> Could it be that that's why we keep coming back on Sunday mornings to places like this? Of course, we need to remember what Shug says to Celie in The Color Purple, that nobody really finds God in church unless they bring God in with them. 
to find hidden beauty in the imperfect people of this world, you have to have cultivated, you have to have practiced having eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand before you can approach them at the deeper level. There's one sermon that I can remember from my 40 plus years of liberal religion that I remember almost whole. It was preached not here but elsewhere, not far away, the Arlington Street Church during a general assembly by my colleague Clark Dewey Wells, and it was on the two texts that we heard this morning. He noted that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is hardly, <laughs> hardly perfect himself. He isn't even polite to the Samaritan woman. Give me a drink, he tells her. No please, no thank you afterwards. But as she humbly draws water for him and expresses wonder that he would accept it from a despised Samaritan, clearly meaning that he doesn't consider her unclean or outside. Well, Clark explained that in that part of the world, there would have been water easily available for the taking up at the surface level in a basin already drawn. Therefore, the washing or the flocks to be watered or for a pitcher to be dipped. But the living, the moving water was at a source far deeper, down at the aquifer level. The same stream of life, said Tagore, the poet of India, that runs through your veins, runs through mine and through all existence. For there is the deep, dearest freshness, deep down things, says Hopkins. And what we need, my friends, especially in times of dryness, is the cultivation of the practice of going deeper. Not just into the past, as traditionalists would recommend, nor ahead into some perfect and utopian future as idealists would have it. But to go deeper, right here and now, in the eternal now, at that spiritually deeper level that opens up when we are wisest. Barbara says the ashram always reminds her of heaven. Not as pie in the sky by and by, but as the presence right in the midst of imperfect humanity and broken creation of that which is most enduring and real and refreshing to our ordinary transient mortal living. When you do things from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a joy. When actions come from another place, the feeling disappears. Because the soul, you see, contrary to some interpretations, well, it comes and goes. 
No one has won all the time or forever, says the contemporary poet of Poland, Wisława Zimborska, because the soul, as Kierkegaard saw, is not an essence, rather an existential reality of human, human living. It is the self relating to the self so deeply that we are at last one with ourselves, with the purity of heart to will one thing, which is all the Buddhas seem to teach, is finally to feel a deeper compassion for one another, for all living beings, and perhaps even for ourselves, who admit our own needs. And so refusing to debate whether there is a God or not, whether there is an eternal soul or not, the Buddha said that until we quench our thirsts in the cool and living waters of a deeper and more compassionate way of being, we are on fire. Until we feel all life flowing on, in, and through us, until we cease trying to hold back the ceaseless flow of time, we can't cultivate the practice of that steady compassion or mindfulness or generosity where it matters most in the blink of an eye, the here and now, which is the span of a human life. Your spiritual practice, my friends, will no doubt differ from mine. But let its deepening begin here and now. The basis of our covenant and free faith is that we accept our differences. That we can begin to help one another to draw more deeply from life's well. To take time like this stare into a clear pool like the one in the mill pond in the ever-flowing stream and then to see the river and feel it flowing in us the living waters as we move to a deeper place and may we bring that deeper place with us whenever we meet again, whenever we return. And let us return often to the very spring. So may it be. Amen.